So this conference is on the nature of virtue, which is um, obviously something we need to talk about if we're having a parenting uh, weekend, a parenting uh, conference weekend, because we understand in a general way at least that it's the parent's mission to bring their children to perfection. Okay, so the child is given to you um, physically very weak, okay, uh, intellectually a, a blank slate, okay, knowing nothing. Okay, a child comes into the world with no uh, infused knowledge, that would be nice, but, but it doesn't work that way, they're a, they're a blank slate. Um, they have no virtue either. In fact, quite the opposite, they're actually wounded with original sin, so they're actually tending in the, the opposite direction. So a parent's mission is to bring that child then to perfection, physical, social, intellectual, and moral, right? So the first thing we have to realize, if this is the, the parent's mission, okay, to bring the children to perfection, and this in fact, when we think about it, the, the difference between a human being in an imperfect state and a perfect state are certain uh, qualities. Okay? Perfection equals the possession of certain qualities. Now those qualities can be physical strength, let's say, uh, courtesy, knowledge, and virtue. I mean, you could go on and on. But these qualities can be on, on many different levels. They can be, let's say, health, uh, strength, the physical order, knowledge in the intellectual order, and virtue in the moral order. All right? So the parent's job, in fact, is shall we say, essentially something positive. Okay? It's to, to give something which the child doesn't have. Right? Of course, there is a, a negative side to it in the sense that we have to sort of uh, take away obstacles to obtaining those qualities. We have to preserve them from certain dangers that are going to make um, the attainment of, of bad qualities um, likely. So there is a certain protection. There's a certain negative side. But in general, overall, what the essential work is something positive. It's to give the child something that he's not born with. Now, of these qualities which establish a human being in a state of perfection, the most important are the qualities that bring the child to a moral perfection. And that's, that's the question of virtue. Oops moral perfection. And what this means is that the child tends towards his goal, his end. Moral perfection means he has this habit of moving habitually in general towards his end as opposed to away from his end. Okay? So the the habit of tending towards his goal, which of course is heaven. Okay. 
Now, among these virtues, we can distinguish the theological and the moral, but we're going to focus more on the moral, okay? The, the questions of faith, hope, and charity are, are more or less straightforward, and they're not so much a question of, I mean, they are a question of everyday life, but shall we say where the rubber meets the road, we're dealing with things like fortitude and patience and temperance, uh, penance is another virtue. Um, it's more uh, a question of, of, moral, of moral virtue when we're talking about perfecting human activity. Okay? Okay. So this habit of tending towards his goal is a question of his activity. Okay? Because of course we move ourselves towards our goal. So the habit inclines our activity towards our goal. All right. So in this conference we'll discuss what a moral virtue is, where a moral virtue is located, if you want, in the soul. Because different virtues are in different parts of the soul. And we'll see how it's acquired, and then some properties of moral virtue. Okay. So what a, virtue, what a moral virtue is, where it's located in the soul, how it's acquired, and then some properties of it. Okay. Um, I'll warn you, I'm a very, I, I, need, I need a course on whiteboard real estate management. Okay? I, I, my students in the college and the high school will tell you I, I go on over here and then I realize I'm out of room and so I kind of move down here. And, and it's, 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 it's not so bad when you have a big whiteboard because that covers a multitude of sins. Okay? But a small whiteboard is going to be immediately evident that I have no idea how to manage my whiteboard space. So I'll, I apologize for that in advance. Okay. So our first point then is the nature of a moral virtue. So what is it? Well, we've already have a hint of what that would be because we've said a person who's in a state of perfection has this habit of always more or less moving in the right direction. His activity is always more or less moving him where he should be going towards his final goal. So the first thing we need to understand about a virtue is that it is a habit. Okay. So we have to have a little definition of habit then. It's a quality which is difficult to uproot, so it's something that's stable, either good or bad, but it's more or less stable. So a habit difficult to uproot by which a person is well disposed or badly disposed. By which a person is well disposed, so inclined in the right direction, or badly disposed. And in fact, a habit can, can refer to his, his state of being or to his operation, but for our purposes we'll just look at the operation. Okay? Regarding his operation. You see I'm out of whiteboard space already. Or if you want his activity, if that's easier for you to, to sort of uh, wrap, your, wrap your mind, if that's a more familiar term. Okay? So it's, it's a habit, is, is a quality in the soul which is, is stable, not that it can't ever be removed or changed, but it's stable, it tends to remain, difficult to uproot which disposes someone to act well or to act badly. Okay? 
In fact, as I said, you can talk about habits in a broader sense. For example, sanctifying grace is also a habit. Okay? Um, it's something that changes our being itself. Not our, not our operation, but our being. Okay? Health is also like that. It's a habit, but it, it, it disposes us well just in our very being itself. But we're not, we're not so much interested in that because we're, we're looking at the question of, of activity. So, I mean, habits in the broad sense, you can think of the ability to ride a bike, uh, fluency in Spanish, if you will, um, courage is a, is, a, is a habit, okay? This is a general idea of habit. So if you want, it is a superimposed pattern of acting, okay? It has be, it is a one, if you want, it's a second nature, something layered over the top of our nature, which becomes, as it were, second nature. It's as if it was us. Okay? A superimposed, over top of our nature, a pattern of acting. And it acts like a second nature. It becomes very easy and pleasant to do certain things because of this, we would say it becomes sort of natural to us. Okay, because it acts like a second nature. Now, if we kind of hone in a little bit more, we can talk about then, specifically, our, our question, which is moral virtue. And this is very simply an operational habit, so uh, a habit that disposes our activity, an operational habit, which disposes a person to act rightly. That is, according to right reason. It makes us act reasonably. An operational habit which disposes a person to act rightly. That is, according to reason. So the thing to understand is that, here's the key point, the mere power to do something does not imply a tendency to do it one way or another. Okay? That's, the, that's the role of habits. Okay? So we have a power to eat. Okay? That doesn't necessarily mean we're going to eat too much or too little or just the right amount. Okay? It's the habit which is layered over top of the power, which is going to determine, well, are we inclined to eat too much, too little, or just the right amount? Okay? So the mere, mere power does not equal a tendency. So we have the ability to know things. Are we going to know things that are true or things that are false? Well, depends on our habits our intellectual habits in that case. We have the ability to choose. Doesn't mean we're going to necessarily be inclined to choose what's right or inclined to choose what's wrong. All of the things that have to do with inclining or tendency are habits and those have to be given or acquired. So therefore, 
A person needs habits superimposed upon his powers, which will incline him to use his powers rightly. Okay. The actual word, virtue, comes from a Latin word, like most of the words that priests talk about. Okay, pretty predictable. Um, anybody know what Latin word that is? Ah, uh, close. Not quite. Not quite. Not quite. Um, Lauren? Virtus. Now, in Christian Latin, we normally translate virtus as virtue, okay? But in fact, in itself, it actually means strength. Okay? So, literally speaking, it means strength. So if you want, a virtue is a strength which is added on top of the power to act. It's a power of a power, if you want. Okay. We, we feel this ourselves because we would like to do, as St. Paul says, you know, I would, um, the, the inner man is pleased with the law of God, but I find it not within myself to do that which I will. You know, We have this sense of I can't do it, even though I would like to do it. And we have this awareness that we lack a certain something. And what we're lacking is this. The habit layered over top of our power to enable our power to act rightly. So virtue, if you want, is a power of a power. And what it, when we say incline, when we say tendency, we're actually meaning three things, okay? Easily, it inclines us to act easily, promptly, and that's kind of a separate thing because, you know, sometimes we, we, ha we do do the right thing, but we don't kind of get around to it right away, you know? Priest gets up in the morning, he knows he should start to pray matins right away but maybe it would be easier with a cup of coffee. And maybe that is reasonable, by the way. I'm not going to sell out on that. I'm not going to surrender on that immediately, okay? Maybe it would be better to have a cup of coffee first. But, you know, let us say, should I do my meditation right away or should I start doing some work? Now, that's something that a priest runs into every day. Um, not that I'm not going to do my meditation, but do I do it promptly, like I should, right at the beginning of my day? So easily, promptly, and even pleasantly. This is what a a virtue enables you to do. To do the right thing, to act according to right reason, easily, promptly, and pleasantly. Because I think about it, if something comes naturally to you, and that's what a virtue is, like a second nature, then yes, if you think of uh, any other activity that you do that you're very good at naturally, well, this is exactly what you can do. You can do it easily, promptly, and pleasantly. And if habits would be necessary anyway, good habits. Because we've just said that the power does not equal a tendency. Okay, so you'd have to give your power a tendency anyway, to the good or to the bad. The necessity is all the greater since original sin. Because in fact, when we're born, we already have a tendency. Okay, that's sort of the, uh, the, uh, the disappointing thing. Okay, we don't come in dead level. No, we're already leaning to the, uh, to the left, if you want, or to the right, but anyway, no, to the left. OK, 
We're already inclined, in fact, to do evil. It's easier and more pleasant to do what's wrong. See? So it's not just, we would need good habits regardless because all we have are powers and we need good habits, but in fact we need them all the more because we're already born, if you want, with wounds, already with a tendency. Okay? All right. So this is the nature of a moral virtue. Okay. Any questions on that before we move on to where are they located? Where are they located? Okay. Well, if we're, if we're doing what I hope we're doing, which is moving in more or less logical order, and we've just said that a virtue is a power of a power. It's a habit, a tendency, which inclines a power to act rightly and in such a way that it's easy and prompt and pleasant, then we would expect that virtues are located in our powers. The powers of the soul. So location. If these good habits or virtues incline the powers of the soul to act rightly, we say that the virtue is in, if you want, the power that it perfects. Okay. The soul, in fact, has four main powers. We usually think of only two, but this is an advanced class, so we're going to see all four. Okay. So, four main powers of the soul. All right. So, who can, uh, who can help me out here? It pays to be brave at the beginning because the first two are easy. Then you can leave the hard two <laughs> for the people who, who didn't act Promptly. Okay, so we need a we need a power of the soul. There we go. Number one, intellect. There we go. There's one. Intellect. Will. Will. That's right. Okay, now we got the dog. <laughs> the low-hanging fruit has been plucked. Hmm. How about the concupiscible appetite? You're like, well, Father, if you say so. <laughs> <laughs> yes, actually. The concupiscible appetite. Now that requires a certain explanation, so we'll we'll do that. Every power of the soul has a certain thing that it's about, a certain thing that it's concerned with. Okay. So for the intellect, that would be truth. Okay. For the will, that would be what? Anybody know? Brian? The good. The good. And I'm going to be a little more uh, specific. Goodness in general. Anything that can be considered good from any point of view can be the object of the will. Okay. The concupiscible appetite is in, is in, its object is sensible good. And I don't mean sensible like reasonable. That's not what I mean. 
I mean things that are appealing to the, the senses. Okay? So, you might think of things like, for those who are of a certain, maybe not morning people, sleep. Okay? That, 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 that thing you have to struggle against when you, you want to hit that snooze button, okay? Um, we were joking. It didn't ever happen. It did not ever happen. It's being recorded, so I have to make sure I say that. But we were joking about a fellow seminarian of ours this past week um, who was not a morning person. And we, were, and we were, it was a joke. We were saying the time that he fell asleep during Father So-and-So's sermon, at the end of the sermon, he woke up and hit the snooze, and hit the snooze button on his pew, which he didn't actually do. But you could sort of, you, it was funny still, because you could picture the guy, and you could see it, the name of the father, oh, when he bakes up, <laughs> hits the snooze button on his pew. Um, for some of us, that's a real struggle, okay? Our, we, it's a certain appetite we have for sleep, okay? Food and drink. Okay, another one. Um, romantic love. Okay. Sensible good. Okay. Um, actually, for if, if you want to, just to sort of make it very practical, um, um, soft rock music, if you will. Okay. It's it's a good example. Okay. And we're getting to that. We still haven't gotten to number four. Okay. Easy listening, if you want. Okay. Um, when this appetite, maybe this is more than you need to know, but we're here. <laughs> we're here till 11.30. <laughs> no, we're not here till 11.30. The next conference is at 11.30. But um, when this appetite moves, we call those passions. Passions are actually the movement of the appetite, actually. And so the movement of the concupiscible appetite is desire, joy, etc. Okay, just to give you kind of an idea. Is that movement is the is the passion. Okay, the power is the appetite, the movement, when it gets going, that's the passion. Okay. Number four, anybody know? Anybody know? Um, it is, it is, Brian? The irascible. The irascible appetite. Now, the irascible appetite, what it wants actually is the difficult good. Okay. okay. So, for example, the, um, it's that thing that gets going when you're, when you're down in the second half, okay, and you kick in and you start playing harder. It's the irascible, app the irascible appetite. You don't want to lose. You want to win. It's a difficult good. And you kick in and you, st you step it up a notch, okay? Um, it's the thing that gets you doing when danger, your friend is in danger, okay? It's the thing that sends a soldier out of the trench, if you want, okay? It's that, that, that passion to, to win. And the, 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 the passions that go with this are things like anger. Okay. Okay. Also, actually, though, things like fear, when the difficult good is seen as unattainable. So the virtues, in fact, they reside in one of these four powers. Okay, that's where they're, they're located. Okay. 
Um, so just for example, um, temperance is here. Temperance. Obedience is here. No will. Um, courage is here in the irascible appetite. All right. All right. Good. So this is just where they are. Depending on what they're perfecting, they'll go in one of those four powers. Okay. Of course, we're trying to, again, if the whole idea just to get back to the big picture, virtue to access, makes us act in a reasonable way. Okay. So these aren't bad things, but we have to pursue them in a reasonable way. Okay. Same thing down here. Okay. To be foolhardy is not brave. Okay. To be foolhardy is not brave. To be reckless is not courage. It's not reasonable. Okay. But courage would go here. So to overcome either fear or, um, or that, that sort of reckless uh, inclination some people have. Right? Okay, real quick, the, the acquisition of moral virtue, the acquisition, which, you, which I think we, uh, we understand easily enough. Of course, this is important because this is what we want to help our children to do. There's actually two kinds of moral virtue. Um, there's what we call infused, which are also called um, supernatural. And there's what we call acquired or natural. Infused moral virtues come with sanctifying grace. And they grow with sanctifying grace. Unfortunately, they don't give the facility in action. Okay? So, uh, these, these really aren't our, so much our concern, because what an infused virtue does is it makes the acts of our powers um, worthy of a supernatural reward. Okay? So, for example, an act of temperance, okay, to not eat too much, can be something purely natural. Okay? I don't want to get sick. I don't want to get overweight. And that's reasonable. That's good. But it's not enough to get you into heaven. Okay? But if you're in the state of grace, you have the infused virtue of temperance, which allows you to do that for a higher motive, which is therefore then meritorious for heaven. Okay? So the infused they don't make it easy, pleasant, and prompt. They make it meritorious. Okay, so this isn't so much our concern because they come and go with sanctifying grace. And they grow with sanctifying grace. Acquired virtues, which is more what we're interested in because these are the ones that give the easiness, the promptness, and the pleasantness. These are acquired by the repetition of acts. Okay. Practice makes perfect. The powers of the soul aren't inclined one way or the other, but when we start to do them, we start to, to, to work them in a certain way, then they do become sort of fixed. 
in that particular choice that you've made. Okay? So acquired natural virtue by repetition of acts. And there's two elements here, not just the frequency, but also the intensity of the act. So to go without that extra helping of mashed potatoes, when you're, you're pretty full anyway, okay? well, that, that, that does increase your temperance a bit. Okay? But on a fast day, when God's making sure you're really hungry, then foregoing that second helping mashed potatoes is an intense act of virtue. It actually deepens the virtue more for that reason. So intensity and frequency. Okay. On a related, but only slightly, <laughs> note, um, when people are getting holier and holier and holier and God sort of puts them through certain purifications, the reason that they, those purifications are so beneficial for the soul is because of the intensity of the acts of virtue. Okay. So you can think of, if you want, St. Therese, late in her life, okay, St. Therese, who lived in a darkness, okay, so she believed, but she didn't, she didn't have that in, intuition about the truths of the faith, okay, it didn't, it just didn't click for her like it used to, she still believed, okay, so she had to make very heroic acts of faith, okay, and that deepened her virtue of faith to, a, to an incredible degree, okay, so that's, that's kind of a different thing, but it's sort of the same idea, okay. Now, of course, if this is how they are acquired, they're lost in more or less the same way. Okay? They're lost either by neglect or by the acquisition of a contrary habit. Okay, it's it's pretty pretty intuitive. The reason neglect um, causes you to lose a virtue is because either you're sort of channeling your powers in a, in, a, in a disciplined mode of action or you're just sort of letting it ride. In which case, whether you want to or not, your power is going to act in an undisciplined way. Okay? You might not be choosing to, to act in an undisciplined way, but you, you just do. If you're not choosing to act in a disciplined way, you act more or less at random. And that habit of acting in a disciplined way slips. Okay. All right. All right. Any questions on that? Before we see the properties, and this is kind of an important one. Okay. Brian. I don't know if Father Beck's going to get into this if he is. Okay. When dealing with children, if you, you try to get them to repeat actions to develop these virtues, mm -hmm. how do you it, how do you deal with the tendency that they want to sort of cheat? So when you're not enforcing it, they right. kind of go the other way and yes. getting them to be able to do on their own. Like I said, maybe that's related. Well, I mean, part of, I mean, there's a there is a part of that is is setting an ideal for the child um, because an ideal obviously is very important for internal discipline. So yes, dad's not looking at me, but I still am looking at the ideal. Um, and let us say, at the beginning, um, 
even if you're not looking at them, if you check their work later, um, it can be a way to, to enforce that. Um, so it, it takes a lot of extra effort on the parent to uh, follow up. Did, did Johnny do um, what I told him to do? Does anybody here have a Johnny? There's, there's no Johnny here. Johnny is sort of my erstwhile child, <laughs> my archetypal child. But if there is a Johnny, I want to make sure I avoid that. Um, so follow up on the parent's part to see what was it done well. And then in the long term, though, it's setting the ideal, um, which takes time. Um, and Father Beck certainly will have, I would say, more to add to that. But that would be my two, my two cents worth. Okay. The properties, the most important, the most important is that virtues consist, moral virtues at least, consist in a mean. All right. Number four, properties. The first and most important, moral virtue consists in a mean. This is not a question of being lukewarm, saying, well, Father, more is always better. Uh, no, actually not. In medio stat virtus, is what we say in Latin. In the middle stands virtue. Or as we say in Ohio, virtue walks the middle path. I don't know if we say that in Oklahoma, but that's what we say in Ohio. Okay. Now, the reason is because Again, getting back to the big picture, moral virtue helps us to act reasonably. But what is reasonable in a given situation depends on the person and depends on the circumstances. Okay? What is reasonable is not some sort of absolute ideal in the clouds. No, it depends upon the concrete situation you're in. Okay? So this mean that we're talking about is a reasonable mean. There is one exception to this, one exception, and that's the virtue of justice, which does actually deal with an absolute mean. So either I owe the guy 50 bucks or I owe him 100 bucks. It doesn't make any difference whether I'm tall, short, sick, Italian, I mean, it doesn't make any difference. It doesn't matter whether it's in the morning or at night, it doesn't matter. If I owe him 50 bucks, I owe him 50 bucks, and that's what's just. Okay. So that's an absolute mean. But for all the other virtues, it's a reasonable mean. And this makes sense. So, for example, one man has five beers. Okay? One man has two beers. One man has no beers. Okay? They can all be equally temperate. Okay? Okay? For one, five beers has no impact on him whatsoever. Okay? And, you know, it's, um, you know, whatever. It's a, uh, a celebration or whatever. For another one, it's two beers for that. And for an alcoholic, it's no beers. Okay. Even have one would be uh, a sin, in fact, placing himself in approximate occasion of sin. Okay. So again, it's a reasonable mean. What's temperate? Well, for Johnny, who's now my <coughs> archetypal adult, uh, it's five beers. And for uh, Pedro, it's two beers. And, ah, uh, boy. And for... Um, Wenceslas, it's no beers. <laughs> trying to pick kind of out there kind of names, okay? Um, with no nationalistic qualities attached to them. 
Those, those ethnic names were not chosen for any other reason than that, for, or for any reason in particular. Um, how much sleep do you need? Well, it depends on the person. How much penance can you do? Depends on the person. Okay. So, the mean will depend on the person and the circumstances. Because a virtue inclines someone to act reasonably, but what is reasonable depends much upon the person and the circumstances. Now, where does this re who, who determines the reasonable? Where does that come from? Hmm. This is kind of important. Matter of fact, this is the most important question. We need to act rightly. Rightly means that I act habitually according to a reasonable mean. How do I know what is the reasonable mean? What helps me make that determination? This is the most important example of acting rightly, is picking the correct reasonable mean as sort of my standard. That's important. It's so important you'd think we'd have a virtue for that. Because hmm. this is really where it all comes down to. I have to have a virtue that tells me what this is so that everything else can be a virtue. You see? I have to figure out what this is so that my other virtues are our virtues at all. Because it's not until I can pick this that I can match my actions to that mean. Whether it be a question of eating or sleeping, working. So pick all the other powers of the soul, whatever the activity might be. This determination is what makes those other uh, virtuous acts possible by setting the standard that they're going to match. So where do we get that mean? Lauren? Prudence. Prudence, which is a moral virtue. Okay. All right. Prudence. I've said this before in adult catechism, but an act of temperance or an act of fortitude or an act of religion or an act of obedience or an act of whichever, an act of um, humility, if you want. All of them are acts of those virtues because they are firstly an act of the virtue of prudence. Okay. What is prudent and what is virtuous are the same. What is prudent and what is virtuous the same. All right. The next quality, I think, flows very naturally from this one. Moral virtues are interconnected. They will tend to grow together. Tend. And the reason is this. Because they're all connected to prudence. Prudence is the clearinghouse, if you want, of every virtuous act. We said that Virtues grow through a repetition of acts. We also said that every act of virtue is an act of prudence. If that's true, you gotta put all this together. 
Every act of, let us say, penance, well, it grows my virtue of penance, but it also grows my virtue of prudence. Oh. Because I'm acting on prudence as well as acting on penance. So my prudence increases as my other virtues increase. But all my other virtues are connected to prudence. Which means it's not going to be a perfect mathematical balancing, but in general, all the virtues grow more or less together. Some lag a little bit more behind, that's true, okay? Because they're only indirectly connected to each other through prudence. But nevertheless, they will tend to grow together. And if you possess any one virtue perfectly, you possess them all perfectly. At least we can say that. Okay. So in other words, if a saint if you, ever, if you ever study the life of a saint, and they can show in doing the investigation that he practiced penance perfectly, or uh, obedience perfectly, or humility perfectly, that's enough. He's a saint. Because that means he practiced them all perfectly. Even if, because of his state of life, one virtue was more obvious than another. He had more opportunity to practice one or the other, depending on his state of life, so therefore, yes, in, in, in the annals of his life, we do notice certain virtues that stand out. But if you can show, hey, he practiced it perfectly, then he's a saint because he practiced them all perfectly. Okay. We can at least say that. They don't always grow at exactly the same rate, but at least when one's perfect, they all are. Because you can't be perfectly prudent, you cannot be perfectly penitential or perfectly obedient or perfectly humble unless you're also perfectly prudent. And in which case, you are everything else. Kind of encouraging. Kind of encouraging. Practical application in our spiritual life, you work on your dominant fault. And everything else will follow. Okay? What's the virtue you need to acquire the most? You work on that one. And it's not just a question of, oh, gee whiz, I'll, I'll have to go back and work on all the other ones later. No, when you work on the one, the other ones will go up doesn't mean you won't have to move on and tackle another one, but when you go to tackle that other one, you'll notice it's already improved. It's encouraging. Okay. So virtues are interconnected. Um, last little detail. Okay. It's not, it's not the most not the most practical, but it's true. Virtues are not all equally important. Okay. Virtues are not all equally important. Okay. We haven't really talked about the theological virtues, but we can here maybe just mention that the theological virtues are above the moral virtues. Okay. Because every virtue has a certain um, thing that it's about. Just like every power has a thing that it's about, well, this habit that's in the power has a thing that it's about. And the theological virtues, see, I'm almost managing my blackboard space correctly, but not quite. I'm, I'm going to run out of room anyway. Theological virtues have to do with God himself. And moral virtues... have to do with human acts. Okay. Theological virtues 
do not have a mean, actually. There's no such thing as having just the right amount of faith in God, okay? or just the right amount of love for God. Okay? If I had a little bit more, ah, it'd be too much. It doesn't work that way. Okay? Theological virtues have no mean. Okay? You can always have more faith in God, more hope in God, or more love for God. So the theological virtues are above the moral virtues. Within the moral virtues, though, too, some human acts are more important than others. Okay? So if you're going to rank the moral virtues, you have to rank them according to their human acts. And moral theologians disagree about what the most important one is. But pardon my piece here. Some say religion. Some say obedience. It's funny because depending on what moral theologian you're reading, they, don't, they won't tell you that they disagree. They'll just tell you whatever one they think it is. <laughs> so you have to read another person's book to find out that they actually do disagree. But that's okay. St. Augustine's the same way. So. All right, so those are the three properties that I wanted to see. They consist in a mean, and for most, except for justice, they all consist in a reasonable mean. That reasonable mean is determined by prudence. Okay. How is the good to be achieved? How is the good to be achieved? What is reasonable in this situation? What is actually going to take me one step closer to my end? So to act rightly, you can consider that from the standpoint of reasonable, or you can say the standpoint of taking me to my end, but it's the same thing, actually. So every virtue is a virtue because it's firstly prudent. What is prudent and what is virtuous are the same thing. Moral virtues are interconnected because they all go through prudence. So as one grows, your prudence grows, which means indirectly they all grow. Although maybe they don't all quite keep pace until you reach perfection, in which case they're all perfect. And all virtues are not equally important. The theological outrank the moral. And amongst the moral, there's also an inequality, depending on the importance of the human act. It's, I, I kind of tend to this direction for the same reason that the theological virtues are the most important. I tend to follow this school of thought. But, but still, the moral virtue of religion has to do with the human acts of worshiping God. Okay. But the, important, the, the most important thing for the purpose of this weekend for you to understand from this conference is that our powers require something layered over the top to perfect them. And you're not born with those. In fact, you're born tending in the other direction. So while it is true that we have to protect our children from bad influences and whatnot, uh, we have to uh, help them break their bad habits, that's true. In general, our overall goal is to put something in their soul. Okay? The, the overall goal is to, put, is to do something positive. Because what we have is a soul with tendencies without the habits that they need to perfect those tendencies. And it's our job as parents or as priests or as teachers to give them those powers of powers that'll make it easy and pleasant to tend towards their end. Okay. Any questions? Mr. Pedri. Is Father Beck going to give us some more detail on how? Yes. 
<laughs> That's why we brought him in. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Tommy? Father, can you give an example of what you mean by immoral virtue consisting in meaning? Sure. So, for example, if we pick, if we pick the virtue of penance, for example, um, obviously there's some factors that go into that. The most notable being our health, okay? Um, the duty of state on that day, to what extent is fasting going to um, inhibit my ability to focus at work or whatever, which comes first, okay? Um, or the ability to, let us say, in monasteries, it's not just, in, it's not just at home, but um, let us say, to what extent, if I'm too hungry, am I going to um, snap at my neighbor? Of course, to some extent, we, have to, we do have to sort of test ourselves a little bit, okay? But, for example, um, in the seminary, they're always telling us, don't fast so much, actually, because of the impact that it does have on your, your concentration. Okay, you burn a lot of energy when you're studying all day long. And the obstacle it does sometimes pose to community life. Okay, your, your tendency to be impatient uh, towards your neighbor. Okay. Um, so, that's, so let's say, not only our physical weakness, but our moral weakness as well. And our duty of state for the day. Also, because if we are too, let us say, if we're outpacing the influence of grace, okay, if we're, if we're trying to go farther than grace is making it possible for us to go, well, there's a question of temptation to pride as well. Okay. Is this going to make, that's another thing, if I'm this penitential, is it going to make me stand out? Okay. Is it going to be a temptation to pride because everybody else notices? Okay. Is it going to be a little bit of a scandal to my neighbor who's not up to doing what I can do, but who might think that he has to do it because he's only a first-year seminarian and I'm a fifth-year seminarian? All kinds of things kind of fit into that. Okay. To what extent is it a bad idea just because it's going to be too noticeable? Okay. So all those kind of factors fit, fit in for the virtue of, uh, of temperance. So my, my circumstances and the circumstances even of those around me. So does your conscience tell you? Um, because you could go through all those things and it's true. try to figure out and you would be just... And eventually you have to act. Right. Eventually you have to act. And your virtue of prudence will grow as you make the best determination you can and you act. And then you see the result. Okay. Eh, I, thought the mean, I thought the mean was here, but I was off. So I have to try again. Okay. So prudence, um, and, and, and prudence would be, you could give a whole series of conferences just in the virtue of prudence, but um, prudence perfects our deliberation. So in other words, it's imprudent not to deliberate, okay, to just go, bam, I'm going to do this. Okay? It's just as imprudent to go on deliberating to the point where you never act. Okay? Your deliberation just sort of tumbles ahead into futility instead of pouring into an act. So prudence has to sort of balance both of those things, okay? And it takes practice. It takes practice. So basically that's the way you uh, learn prudence is by mm -hmm. testing your actions. That's one way. Another way is to seek counsel, okay? So you, you, you're facing a decision and it's prudent to recognize your own uh, limitation of experience, and so you go ask some. You ask a prudent person how they, someone who you judge to be more prudent than yourself, 
How would you react in this situation? What would you do? So to some extent, it can be learned from that, that way. Um, so that's kind of the two ways. So you, you, you ask people that you judge to be prudent how they would react, how they would, and this is very important for young priests, for example, okay? or young parents, if you want, um, to seek counsel of those with more experience. So to some extent, it can be learned. To some extent, it's just acquired by practicing. Father, just quickly, the difference between moral and true? And and ah, okay. So true is correspondence with reality. Okay. So what's in my head is what's outside my head. Okay. So I have brought the outside into my head accurately. Okay. So what's in my head matches what's outside my head. Truth is actually a relationship between my idea and the reality. When they're equal, then truth has happened. Okay? Truth is in my head. Moral would be the relationship between my act and my goal. Okay? Um, morality is an accident of a human act. Okay? It's something kind of off to the side. It's a quality of a human act. And it's also a relationship. The relationship between my act and my end. Does this act take me towards my end or not? So, morality is based on the truth because it depends on what my end is and it depends on what the act is. So, it, it's depend, it dep the, the relationship is something real between my act and my end and that relationship shifts depending on the reality. Okay? So, if someone walks into the room and I shoot them, bam. Okay? That act is immoral because it's disordered. Okay? It does not, it's opposed, in fact, ultimately to charity. Okay? So it doesn't lead me to my end, it's murder. Okay? If someone comes in and points a gun at me and I draw faster and shoot him, that act is not the same. Say physically it's exactly the same. Morally it's very different. Okay? Because it is reasonable to defend your life. Okay? So there's no opposition between that act and charity or between that act and my goal, even though physically it was exactly the same act. So truth will, truth is bringing into my head the reality that's outside of my head, and it's the reality outside of my head that determines the relationship between the act and my goal. That's why you can never judge somebody for what they do, because you don't know what the truth is. At, at least, at least, um, I mean, some acts, for example, are um, so intrinsically wrong. Okay? So the act itself, objectively speaking, we do know the relationship. Okay? The degree of culpability of the person is something we don't know. But some, sometimes we can't even judge the act. But sometimes the act is clear. Um, the intention is not. Okay? So the culpability is... Um, and that's an extra level of complication because the, the relationship between the act and my end um, is there, but if my knowledge or my intention is something other, um, it might be, in a very um, strange set of circumstances, that an act which is in itself wrong because I don't know it and my, my ignorance is, is invincible. I think it's right, and so actually I do it for the love of God. And it actually does take me towards my goal. But that's an unusual situation. Okay? 
and it's, and it's only because there's a defect in my knowledge. I don't see the relationship, and I'm not even aware that I don't see the relationship. Because if I'm aware that, okay, I don't really know, then I have an obligation to investigate. Well, that, to tie that in with children and raising mm-hmm. kids, kind of why I ask. Sure. Kids know, you know, we've gone through a lifetime of experiences for certain things, or like, you know, absolutely like spitting. Mm-hmm. For example, you know, mm-hmm. kids spit, and it's just, mm-hmm. but, you know, we've seen it, you know, you spit as a sign of disrespect, and, sure. you know, so on and so forth. So, what's in their head uh-huh. versus what's in, you know, my head right. is so different. It's you true. You can't judge them on that action sure. like you would another adult that would. It doesn't necessarily mean the same thing. It's a bit like the cross the different cultures, you know. Um, the 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 signification of this act in a different culture is not the same as, as in our own. Um, although you just, again, because we live in the culture we live in, um, and this is not so much a question of moral virtue as a question of social virtue. Okay, so it has nothing to do necessarily with getting to heaven, but it does have to do with acting reasonably with your neighbor, because there are certain social expectations. And it's reasonable, as long as those expectations are reasonable, to abide by those. Because for all of our good, we have to live in society. And so whatever makes, whatever societal norms make that interaction easier should be done. Because otherwise, it's an obstacle for me living in society and getting the benefit out of social interaction that my nature uh, requires. So social norms... Okay, they're not moral laws, but still it's reasonable to follow them as long as they're reasonable because it makes it easier for society to function. And it's God's will that we live in society because somehow that interaction with others perfects us. So we have to make that interaction as you know, smooth as we can. Strong, you mentioned about as people are growing in holiness, how God kind of steps in and Yes. Test you or yep. How so? How does that look in our life? How that can happen? Um, well, it actually has to do with the gifts of the Holy Ghost. So that we, we, we actually God starts using the gifts that we have, um, and particularly through um, the gift of wisdom and the gift of understanding. Um, for example, the, with the gift of understanding, you actually begin to see yourself as you really are, and it's not a pretty picture, and I don't mean you. <laughs> I mean all of us. And it can be very, very discouraging, actually, okay, to see yourself as you are. But it's necessary for you to, to make that jump in humility and trust in God that you need to be a saint. So sooner or later, when God thinks you're ready, he's going to show you what you are. And at that point, you have to hold on, and you have to have faith, and you have to make the act of humility and say, yes, this is what I am. Um, so that enlightenment through the gift of understanding can be like that. It can also be an enlightenment as to the majesty of God. And you, you sort of see your own insignificance and God's majesty. And you're still um, supposed to make that act of confidence that God can make me worthy of that. Even though now I begin to understand what God is. So it's hard. It's a trial. But it's, it's through that enlightenment and those acts of heroic virtue that you, you finally do bridge that gap. But, um, but that's, a, that's a, another conference, mystical, mystical theology. For most of us, we're not quite at that level yet. We're still doing the, the day-to-day grinded out virtues. 
we'll stop there because it's about uh, 11.20. We got a little late start. So we'll finish with a prayer.